You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. So on today's episode, we're excited to have uh, Mike Neighbors, head women's basketball coach of University of Arkansas. Um, coach Neighbors is so generous with his time. He's been super generous over this last uh, year, especially I've seen him in a lot of places and, uh, um, you know, on his YouTube and, and all that stuff. So there's so much good information out there from Coach Neighbors. Uh, coach, we appreciate being on. How are you doing today? Thank you for joining us. Of course, doing great. I think it's been a the one thing about COVID, it's been great to connect with people all over. I've learned probably the greatest year of learning I've had since uh, probably second or third grade. Uh, and I've just loved meeting everybody and getting on and having different conversations and uh, appreciate the opportunity today to visit with you guys. Thank, thank you so much. So we wanted to kind of start uh, kind of a, a fun topic. We yeah. know we've heard you talk about your lists. Um, <laughs> we kind of think that's, that's pretty cool. You have a movie list, a music list. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, how did those evolve kind of over the years? Well, it initially started because I worked with a really annoying assistant coach that was from uh, upstate New York. She's, she's not annoying, but her, the way we talked, we used to talk to each other was, and every time a song came on, she'd go, Oh, just turn it up. This is my favorite song. You know, she with her thick New York accent. And I'd be like, it can't be your favorite song. The last song was your favorite song. And, Oh, it's my favorite movie. And I'm like, oh. And it dawned on me. I was like, you know what? I don't guess I even know what my favorite one is. So I've probably done that. I've probably annoyed people with it before, too. So I just started out with songs and then went to movies. And it's gone so many subset lists now. But ultimately, what I was, what it is now is, is I want to be able to tell the truth. I, I want the truth to be told to me as often as possible. So when somebody says, Hey, what's your favorite movie? I want to know the answer and I want it to be an established criteria and I want us to be talking about the same. So a lot of times I'll ask them, I'll say, well, well, what's your criteria for favorite? Do you mean the one I would listen to on a desert Island or the one that when it comes on, I crank it up or the one I never pause 
are the one I own the most copies of. I mean, there's a lot. Let's talk about criteria because again, I want the truth. Um, and then it just exploded and it's just been, you know, 20 going on year 22 in college, a lot of plane rides and bus trips and layovers and uh, hotel rooms, just adding to it. The, the movie list is over 3,700. The song list is over 55,000 now. Um, the TV series is up over 300. I've got, you know, all kinds of subsets off of that, but it, it, it boils down to an, an annoying conversation to start. And now I want to tell the truth. I want to be truthful that this is when somebody says, you know, where's Shawshank? It's 23. Oh God, it can't be 23. It's the greatest movie ever. But I say, well, okay, what's, what's your favorite? Well, uh, and then I said, well, just shut up because you don't have a, you don't have a list. If when you get your list, you can argue with me about mine because when you start writing that stuff down, man, you get to 23 pretty quick. So anyway, I, I guess I don't know if that answers it or not, but it started with an annoying conversation with a really good coach and a really good friend and has led to, I, I want to tell the truth about every single conversation I have. I want to be truthful. So, all right. So, well, that, that kind of ties in perfectly. All right. So you said annoying friend, right? Yeah. I have a buddy. We're on this group chat, right? College buddy. He considers himself someone a movie aficionado. He's been dogging me. Coach Z, I want to be on your podcast. So I told him I could tie it in. I'm going to give him a shout. His name's Mike Patello, but he's a movie aficionado. I see your Go Hickory shirt. He has Hoosiers oh. as his top basketball movie of all time. Ooh. What's the first basketball movie or the top basketball movie on your list? Well, it is too. Hoosiers okay. is number one. I'll, I, I'll tell you it, um, it, it over the years, there's been other ones that I like as much, but Hoosiers, the time it came along and the way it impacted me, it, it stayed number one. But um, my number two, a lot of people argue that it's not a basketball movie, but I, I think it's got a lot of basketball. It's Finding Forrester uh, with mm -hmm. Sean Connery. Uh, man, I, I think that's such a great movie. Um, so well done. And, and basketball is a central theme of it. So I, I've got that one number two. Everybody dogs me about Glory Road because I, Glory Road, they just oh, took too great many. Movie. It's a great movie, but they took too many liberties. There, there was a lot of scenes that weren't accurately depicted. And, and sure. I know that that's, you know, part of uh, cinematic licensing to be able to do that. But uh, I do have that list. I've got one through, I think, 80. I've got, I've seen 80 basketball movies. Um, so those, those are up there toward the top. I'm a big fish to save Pittsburgh guy. Uh, if you haven't seen that one, I love Fast Break, another old one with Gabe Kaplan. So um, it's uh, there's there's a lot of basketball movies out there. When you sit down and rank them, I think I've got over 85 that I've seen. So, well, so, I appreciate it, Coach. Now I can get my buddy off my back in the group chat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whoa, I'm, I'm with him. I, I, I love Hoosiers. I actually own a copy where it's titled Best Shot. That was the initial. Uh, the initial name of it, and it was released in uh, England uh, under the title Best Shot. So I've got that one. That's kind of a prized possession I have. So I just, so Todd knows, and everybody who knows me knows I'm a huge music guy. I literally walk around with a blue Bose speaker when I'm at work. But okay. So, so I'm looking for, I got a specific, I'm going to go specific on you. I like to do a pregame locker room song while I'm writing stuff on the whiteboard prepping for yep. a game. Yeah. What would be like your number one song you would play in that situation? It, it, you know, it varies year to year. I make a playlist every year and it's crazy. It, you know, it, one year, I, the first one I ever had was 
Eminem song, you only get one shot, you know, that one. Yeah. I had that one year. Uh, that was a recruiting mail out. I wrote those lyrics out to a kid. We actually got her. Uh, that one's been up there. Uh, Metallica, Inner Sandman's been up there. Uh, for the last eight years, though, well, not eight years, I guess about four years now when it came out, uh, there's a Texas country artist named Cody Johnson. And uh, he wrote a song called Doubt Me Now. And it's got a couple of lines in it, like, just, just I mean, because, you know, I was an assistant coach for a long time and kind of got a head coaching job in a weird way and had a lot of doubters, but this song, Better Doubt Me Now, that's what I, I don't do it anymore, but if I had one in my head, uh, John, that'd probably be what it is. Cody Johnson, uh, Doubt Me Now, you look it up, I think you'll I'm, see why it fires me up. I'm going to right after this. So. Yeah. The other thing I found really cool, you know, Todd and I like to do our homework and our background on our guests. Um, but I found out that you were actually a student athlete during the Nolan Richardson era. Uh, and I think you graduated the year before he won the national championship. Yeah. Well, I wasn't much of a uh, athlete. I was an intramural rock star. I got cut from our baseball team uh, by coach DeBrine when I first got to university, I, I transferred from a junior college and thought I had a chance to play baseball for the Hogs. And I got my one-day tryout, and, and Coach DeBrine very graciously let me know that I should begin my coaching career. It's a great story we could go into if we had a longer time. But, but yeah, I was a student here. Uh, and going to the games, uh, I remember, um, you know, selling my tickets to the UNLV uh, Arkansas game. It was number one versus number two. I had student tickets. Me and my buddy were walking to the game at a – limo is the first time I'd really seen a limo in Fayetteville pulls up window comes down and I mean this was straight out of Goodfellas <laughs> I was like what is going on here and this guy pokes his head out and very um what would you expect from a guy coming in from Vegas flying in trying to scalp some tickets I said well I we thought they were cops of course gonna set us up so we're like nah we're not selling he goes well it's not illegal to sell that hat you got on is it and I had some old you know, corduroy back in the time corduroy was in, by the way, corduroy Nike hat or something. He goes, I'll give you, I'll give you $1,600 for that hat and your buddy's hat, 800 a piece. And we kind of figured out that meant we better put the tickets inside the hat when we sold it. So uh, we did it. Uh, I think hopefully the statute of limitations is gone. Um, but the Nolan Richardson days, the, the, the 40 minutes of hell and uh, the up and down style, the long shorts, um, that really, that really galvanized our state and really got, really got basketball, even though they'd been to the final four back in the late seventies, that was the national championship years, ninth, 94, 95. Those, those two runs were just a huge time in our state. So I would uh, transition a little bit into the, the recent WNBA draft here. Uh, you know, so I'm sitting with my daughter, we're watching the NBA, WNBA draft, um, you know, obviously we, we saw you, you make an appearance on there, but I wanted to kind of talk about uh, the fun thing for me about the WNBA draft and any draft is when each player gets chosen and you've had so many players chosen over the years, but they, they kind of go back to being a kid with their yep. excitement and their joy. Um, you know, even though it's turning into more of a business, they've, sure. they've worked so hard for it. Um, what does it mean to you as, as a coach of, of all those players to be able to experience those moments with them? Well, as you said, we, we get to be there beside them and, uh, you know, experience it with them. But what I like is to hear how many people they think, think 
thank say thank yous to family, friends, former coaches, former teammates. It just shows you how many people impacted their lives. And and we're we're the last ones, like probably the least, probably the least important in the grand scheme of things, too. And we're the ones that get to be sitting there. And she calls my son, my my youngest son, her little brother. So he's up there on national TV with her. We're talking about Chelsea most recently. And yeah, he was bebopping uh, in and out there. I saw. Oh, him. well, I, t- I kept trying to get him out of the shot because I didn't want him to do something stupid. And her <laughs> her mom kept grabbing him, putting him back in. So, uh, but they're they're awesome. Um, but you 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 said it right. They go back to being kids, and there's each one of them that I've been a part of have been so different. And you know, this one you're sitting there in front of the camera, watching along with it, and and when they took. Uh, Kaiser's Gondrasek at number four, Chelsea, in her, in her mind, I could see it. She thought, oh, wait, that probably means I'm going to go lower than expected. I, I could see it turning in her head, and her mom was like, well, that's a surprise. And they were kind of – because they've been talking to teams and agents, and I'm sure they had, you know, kind of a number in their mind. And I knew that she was getting ready to go fifth. We, we got a little tip ahead of time just so we could be – prepped and ready mainly so I could turn around and grab the right hat I didn't want to grab the wrong dang hat so I, I had it set in very right where I couldn't screw it up and uh so it was added, a little added excitement with her because she she thought for just a second maybe she was going to slip a little bit and so to hear that name come out at number five was was a lot of fun you know I I do hate it that we're having to do it virtual because going with Kelsey a few years ago when she went number one overall. And I went with a couple of other kids in the past, that whole experience of being in the same building with all of the people at the same time, just kind of amps it up to another level, but um, it'll never stop. It'll, it'll never get old because you nailed it. It, it takes them back to why they played this game, why they got into it. Um, and and it, it takes away that pressure and that business side of things and, and reminds you it is just a game. Um, but it's one now that, you know, that's a, that's an ultimate reward. And the WNBA just getting drafted is not good enough because you got to go make a team. And it's so incredibly hard. I mean, I think there'll be a handful and, and it's nothing's guaranteed. I mean, Chelsea's picked number five and she's not even guaranteed a spot. So, um, you know, it's a hard, hard league to get into. I, I hope it can continue to grow uh, to where we have more teams, more availability, because I know that sport would grow. There's an interesting article out there right now that is comparing it to where the NBA was at in year 25. And it's in better shape. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, statistically, the WNBA is in a better position. And maybe it's not increased for inflation and all that, but but it, it, it's still growing. And I think it's why it's continued to su- survive. We're getting a lot of help from a lot of NBA uh, people, players, league, uh, owners, and it just, it needs to continue because it's good basketball. And it's a great opportunity for, for, uh, our young women to, to look up to these kids and, and have an opportunity to do something they love beyond college. So, you know, I wanted to go into your time at Washington, you know, you built something amazing, and, you know, take us through, I know Arkansas is obviously where you were born and raised and went to school, but just take us through, you know, how hard it was to leave Washington and just that feeling when you finally returned to Arkansas. Yeah, it was not a no brainer. I mean, a lot of people thought that it was, you know, I, I, it was, it was easy. It was not. Um, I went out there, of course, with Kevin McGuff, who's at Ohio State now, I'm sorry, the Ohio State. 
Um, I owe him a drink every time I don't say the Ohio State before I announce him. But um, I went out there with him uh, when, you know, he was making the transition. I almost didn't go. Um, I almost got out coaching because I really wanted the Xavier job. I uh, thought I had done everything I could possibly do to get myself in position. I had just met, I had three dream jobs, four dream jobs. I had Tulsa, UCA, Arkansas, Little Rock, uh, and Arkansas, and then Xavier once I got there. And I thought this was the best job. I just missed the last year on three of them, UCA and Tulsa and Arkansas. I didn't even get sniffs on. So Xavier was kind of the last one. And, and when I didn't get in, I was really, I was really jaded. And, and almost didn't go. And he talked me into getting on the plane and going out there. He said, you're going to love Seattle, which I did immediately. <clears throat> and we got it going. You know, he had a great blueprint for how we were going to turn uh, Washington around in the Pac-12. We thought it was a great time to be coming into the Pac-12, and he was right. Um, had, had a couple of years there right off the bat of, of solid success, 20-win seasons when his first two years. And that's when the Ohio State called him. And I just kind of slid slid over to the next office before anybody before anybody knew the difference. I just kind of moved my <laughs> stuff over there and oh, oh, kind of pulled the George Costanza. Just you know showed up like, you know, hey, I'm here. So I got the you know Kelsey Plum and that group of freshmen that were coming in were instrumental in saying that they really wanted me to be their coach and our returning players. So it worked out, and I just kept building on the blueprint that Kevin had started with uh, that group of players, and we caught lightning in a bottle. You know, I. We all knew that Plum had greatness in her, but we had no idea that she could take a team um, that had been picked at the bottom of the league uh, to the final four and along the way become the all-time leading scorer. And so, yeah, it was a really magical time. We had a great team coming back. You know, Ari McDonald, who just, you know, kind of became the media darling of this year's NCAA tournament. She was a freshman on that team. We recruited her as well and signed her. And she was a freshman on my last team there that in 2017, we got knocked out in the sweet 16. Um, but that's when Arkansas did call. I had, I had not gotten the job three years prior when it came open after my first year out there. So I was a little bit skeptical. I, I didn't know for sure whether or not it could be done. Uh, there was some strife and turmoil going on here. I knew it was at rock bottom. Uh, and it was going to be hard. And here we are sitting with, you know, Ari McDonald and two or three other McDonald's All-Americans that were rolling. I loved, re really, really loved Seattle. But my daughter was getting ready to be a, a sophomore in college. My son was getting ready to be a junior in high school back here. My mom and dad were getting a little bit older and timing was right. Um, I hated to leave Ari and the rest of that group that was up there, Amber Melgoza, who went on to become the Pac-12's leading scorer for a couple of years. I hated to leave those kids. Um, but for the family and for my, my, my dream had always been to, like I say, be at Arkansas. I wanted to be a player first, obviously that dream ended and then it was to get back and coach. So I didn't, I was afraid whoever they hired would be able to do the job and I wouldn't get, ever get an opportunity to do it again. That was my final filter was I, I think if they don't hire me, they're going to hire somebody else. And the, the talent in the state and the region at the time was so good that I thought whoever they hired was probably going to turn it into a 20 or 25 year job. And that was going to leave me out. Cause I'm just, I don't have that many more years left in me. So opportunity and time and, and then coming home, you know, to be around family, high school friends, college friends, and a place where I'd still had contacts with literally every high school coach in the state. 
Um, the timing was just perfect. So I want to transition a little bit more to X's and O's now. Um, so I, I came across one of the many, you know, uh, coaching newsletters I got. You were talking about one of your plays, Twirl Side, and, and you were kind of talking about um, it almost sounded to me like, and maybe I'm wrong here, but kind of scripting that play to read what the defense is going to do and kind of basing all of your other stuff off that. Um, so I just kind of wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit. Um, you know, going into games, uh, maybe finding stuff that you think you can get and then reading, reading what they do um, and, and kind of how you uh, go about uh, using those progressions in game. Yeah. Well, I've had, I've said that publicly so many times that everybody knows it's coming. So what they do is they guard it one way the first time and then they switch it, guard it the rest of the way, like they practice. So I've, um, I've had to learn that the hard way that, uh, people also scout my podcast. So um, we do run a, a base play. We, we always want to see if, if they're in, if they're in some kind of man coverage, uh, we want to know, you know, what they're, what they've been working on in practice. You know, what, what, what was their scouting report? So I call them triads. I, and I don't know why there, there are three plays, but triad just sounds like a badass word to me. Like it's, it seems like, right. you know, it's like this, you know, cool word. So, we call them triads, but um, if this play, if, if we run this play and you guard it a particular way and, and you, you haven't worked so hard that you're going to change every time we come down the court, our next two, we, we're not even score on that first play. That's okay. Just don't turn it over because <clears throat> you all know I hate turnovers, but let's get a shot. And that now we ought to score on our next two plays. And then it those plays all lead to these triads. So in the triad, if, if the first play works, we want run one of the other two, and then that leads to the other one. And if both of those work, then we just run them in reverse order. And we just keep reversing them Interesting. until until somebody stops them. Um, and, and we had a game, it was, it was to me, at, the, at university, it was in the Sweet 16, we beat Kentucky in Rupp Arena. We ran one play the whole night, and we just, we just kept all the way through. And, and Plum was just masterful, and Chantel Osar was on that team as well. And then Talia Walton got incredibly hot, had 32, I think, that night. But we ran the same play and just different reverse orders out of that same – we never got off that triad. So – but some, obviously teams do guard us because we've lost a lot of games. Um, but if they stop one, then that leads you to someplace else. It, it's kind of like a, a road map more than a script, I think. Um, we're not, we're not like football where we can go huddle and, right. you know, take 20 seconds to, you know, cover our mouths up and <laughs> right. in all the cool, we have to, we have to be doing this in transition. So your language and your vocabulary and has to be the same, has to be consistent, has to be easy to understand, has to, you know, give the kids a quick mental image so they can really flow seamlessly into it. Cause we try to play fast. Um, but I, I think of it kind of like as a roadmap, you know, this, this led us to here that, okay, this led us here, but they stopped us. So you turn, let's go back this way. And, you know, sometimes you get all over the map and other times you stay right there in one little circle, you know, depending on, you know, what it, our, our term is make them wrong. Like, hey, just make them wrong. I, you know, they, they've worked on their defense, but we've given you a plan to no matter how they guard it, you should have been able to make them wrong. And that's decision-making and execution and giving your kids confidence and letting them go play. 
okay let's let's scale that back even more now you have yeah. your triads and you're in practice um what is the the progress and the progression to kind of teach those those reads yeah. uh you know based on what the other team does sure uh well you, you've got to practice the same situation we we teach five on five uh I, i'm not a big you know whole part whole guy I'm, it's we're always playing five on five i hope so we always teach it out of fives uh, we drill it. We'll, we maybe break it down and play some small-sided games to where you can't touch the other side of the floor. You've got to read it this way. But um, I just experience putting them in different situations, chaotic situations to where they have to calm down and execute. But we, we, we practice those triads to the point where I think, you know, if you came in, I've got a sophomore point. Or, well, she's still being a sophomore because of COVID, but if I told her we were going to run twirl side first, she knows the next two plays. And probably, probably the next 10. So you just, you keep, you keep building on it. Uh, you start out really, really slow um, until there's mastery. Then, then you can speed up a little bit, but we don't ever get past, um, you know, the first couple of actions. If, if you don't execute those, none of the other ones matter. You've got to be, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust in that first hand it off to the off tackle, see what they're going to do. Then you, you build from there. Um, we spend about 80% of our practice time on offense. It, it takes offense takes longer. Um, a really famous. Well, I shouldn't call him famous because he might actually listen to this um, legendary because he's old. He's coached a long time. So he becomes legendary in this area. A great clinician. He, he said in a, in a, a clinic one time, he said, you know, offense is art and defense is science. And science takes a lot longer. Uh, I mean, art takes a lot longer to perfect. Science is cut and dry. Uh, art, man, you can you can be go a lot of different directions with it and make it your own. And I always think of him whenever I, we're putting together our offense. But we start out really slow. Then we build it to this massive, like I'll have a huge roadmap in the middle of the year. And then at the end of the year, it's back down to one card. It, we, we, we add it, then we shrink it down to the things we're going to be good at um, in particular games. We scout, do the best we can. You know, obviously, you know, I can't control how another team's going to defend us. That's up to them. And we just have to – we have to have the tactics ready to at least make them wrong the majority of the time. But we, we, we work that in practice, and we really penalize turnovers – uh, because you, we've never scored on a turnover one time in our life, but every now and then we get fouled on a bad shot or luck one in. So um, practice it at speed, practice it five on five, practice it in a lot of chaotic situations, try to make them as uncomfortable as you can uh, in practice. And if, if you're spending 80% of your time on, on offense, then, then you've, got, you've got to be creative in ways to keep it fresh and that's what we tried to do with some of the ways we score our drills and the way we make the uh, determine the winners. So, you know, I, I've always been fascinated whether you were at Washington or Arkansas, I love to play fast. You know, my teams, you know, most of the years do play very fast. So, you know, I wanted to focus really on your transition offense, I guess in a couple different parts, I guess, first starting off, you know, what's your goals, what are your essential goals for just your transition offense and what are your thoughts on, you know, some people right now are four out transition. Some people are five out. So let's kind of start there. You know, what, what, 
what are your goals and, and kind of how do you mold it? Well, we, we want to get more people into the front court before they do that. That's the, the thing people, not necessarily the ball, but people. So that we, you know, we've come up with the term functionally fast. I only want to play as fast as we can go without turning it over. So like if, or, and making bad decisions, those two things go hand, both usually go hand in hand, but um, if we get to making poor decisions or we get to taking poor shots or we turn it over, then I slow them down and they don't, none of them, they don't know. Nobody wants to do that. So we, our first thought is once we secure the ball, it, it's a race. It's a race to your space. Uh, we've, we've got the two locks that run to the corners. Um, you know, I've got one person that designated, we call them the dragon. They're going to be late. They, everybody tries out for that position. Everybody wants to be the one that's late. They, they love that spot. The one that doesn't have to that's right. it to the corner. Yeah, that's right. There, there's a long line, but, but, but for the last three years, it's been dungy. So nobody tries out for that spot no more. We, we have open <laughs> tryouts. I'm like, all right, who wants to try out for the dragon spot? There's always one person in it. And there's usually a freshman that's going, oh, I'll try it. They do that for about two days and they're like, oh crap, I'm going to be a lock. Um, so, but the, the, it all starts with that person that runs to the rim, in my opinion, uh, because we very rarely do you have five kids that can run and shoot threes at our level. I think you can at the NBA level, and maybe some of the best teams in the world can can sprint five people, four people to the arc, and one person try to rack it. But I, I think we have to have somebody that, that really puts a lot of pressure on the get-back kid. And, and most times they're not the get-back kids, usually the other team's point guard. So we try to run a big, we just tell her to seek that the front of the rim or the get back kid. So you're occupying the first person back who's probably in charge of pointing and talking for the other team. You want to occupy them immediately and with a lot of pressure and pace. So whether that's running past them to get to the rim for a layup or to post up on their body to keep them from being able to fan out to one of your corner shooters. But our number one thing when we start breaking down transition offense the first couple of weeks on film is we'll pause it. And from the second that we obtain the ball, how quickly can those people recognize that we got the ball and it's time to go? And, and I want them to look like sprinters. You know, if we're upright or if we're not down running, we stop right there. And, and long before we ever get a shot at the other end, we just work on running to your space. And if you'll race to your space and win your race, you're going to play. And then you're going to get shots. So we, we do build that sequentially. We all five at the same time, but you know, the, the locks run to that corner and they don't look for the ball at half court. They sprint. We're not going to throw it to them at the half court line unless they're first. We tell them if you hit that half court line and you look up and there's nobody back, then you can peek real quick to see if the ball can find you for a layup. If not, continue your race to your space. So I don't think what we do is very earth shattering. It's graphically very simple, but I think it's some of the rules that the don'ts, we're never going to throw it up the street, up the sideline. You know, everybody's like, well, the ball, you can advance it faster with the, the pass. Well, not us. We can't because we turn it over a lot of times in that area. We can't do that. Uh, maybe you can, maybe these other people can teach it better than, than I can, we can, but we turn it over there more often than not, or we throw it behind them out of bounds or we charge or we do something, something bad happens. So I would rather that ball be in the person's hands that I trust the most. And her mentality is racket, get it to the rack, get a paint puncture, 
puncture the paint somehow, either to lay it in, drop it to your rabbit, kick it to your locks, or, or hit your dragon late. And I tell them early in the year, and we this is going to be coming up here, this coming year when y'all watch us. It'll be the first year at Arkansas that we've been able to do it. If you lose your race, if you're not the person with the ball, if you lose your race two times in a row, you're out. You're out. Um, I heard Coach Ariema this summer say something that really I, I've thought I've known it for years, but I've never been able to articulate it. He articulated it perfectly. He said that once you've coached a kid and they've learned it, and our kids learn, you, you're going to run. You're going to run to your space. Once they've learned it, once you've coached it, once you've taught it, and they've learned it, there's only two reasons that they that it doesn't happen. They won't or they can't. And that, that was perfect. He summed stuff up. So it was perfect. So now I look at him, I go, well, do you not want to do it or you can't do it? Which one is it? And the answer to that's always, I didn't do it. I can, you know. So if you lose your race twice or if you're the racker and you don't get a paint puncture or you don't try to attack the basket, I assume you can't or you don't, don't want to. So I'll take you out until you decide which one it is. And when you get that established and we're there, we finally have, I think, 10 or 11 players that know what we expect. We've taught it well enough. They're comfortable. They're confident enough. So now it's going to be easy. Hey, you just lost your race two times in a row. Sorry. Next man up. And in the film, it's easy to see on film. It's easy to show them. And it, as long as you um, hold them accountable for it very early in the year, then they'll learn and they'll start to do it. Uh, and I think that's what gets us a chance. Listen, it, there's games there, that it's cost us. I know that. But there is it's the only way that we beat Baylor and UConn this year. If we tried to go into a half court, do what they do, just do it better, then we're, we don't have a chance. We lose that game 100 times out of 100. But, but that one time when they roll in to our arena and for whatever reason – and Coach Ariema said, he goes, I tried to tell my team these guys were fast. I tried to show them. I tried to tell them. I obviously didn't get the point across. <laughs> because it was this – you saw them looking at each other like, whoa. But it gives us a chance. It gives us a slugger's chance, a puncher's chance to beat the best teams. Uh, we've got to rebound it better to beat one of those types of teams. But we're getting there. But I think you've got to have something that knocks those people. Those people are there for a reason. The same about the same 10 teams are talked about every year. There's always an outlier or two that jumps in there for a couple of years, but to knock those people off, you, you've got to have something that they don't see every single day and they don't see all the time in their, in their league and their conference. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that was phenomenal. <laughs> I'm stay, I'm stealing three fourths of everything you just said. Um, you know, so my other just follow-up question is, so you you, your team plays a game, you, you know, your transition offense, you're talking to them after, obviously outside of points per game, or, you know, uh, Todd was looking that you had 1.036 points per possess, uh, possession in yeah. transition, but yeah, that's our number. I was just going to say, what are the, what are the things you measure your fast break on? That points per possession or points per play, whatever. To me, that, that shows efficiency. Um, it also obviously turns in, it, 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 penalizes turnovers you don't even have to talk about that 
we've turned the ball over fewer times than anybody in the country in Power 5 basketball over the last eight years. It's not even close. Like, if you take our four teams at Washington, our four teams here, turnovers per game, we're almost three less than the next closest person over that same year, that same time. So, points per possession, points per play, whichever one you want to break it down to, free throw rate, how many times we get to the foul line in comparison to how many times we put our opponents there, which we're normally pretty good in that area. Um, and, and then just, you know, the, the second thing for us, we've got to at least not get crushed on the boards. Like we've been out rebounded by 20 to 25 and still won. Um, the number I like, if you, if you could only give me one number. So this is, this is where that truth stuff comes in that list. Let's make a list. Let me shoot more shots than they do every game. Free throws, free throws and field goal attempts combined. If you will give me, if you'll tell me we're going to win that battle every single night, then I'll take my chances. I get crushed personally from my girlfriend downstairs to some of my coaching buddies. Y'all got a rebound. Y'all got a rebound. Get on them boards. Y'all, 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 rebound, rebound. I mean, our message boards, y'all, if you want some fun, get on our message boards and talk, look at the rebounding talk. So my question to people that have that argument all the time is I said, okay, well, why do you want to rebound it? Oh, get more, get more shots. I said, okay, here's our 30s. Here's our 20, what were we, 28 games this year. Here's our 28 box scores. Find me how many times we gave up more shots than we took. It happened one time and we won the game. So if that's the reason you want me to rebound, <laughs> we're already doing that with other things by not turning it over. By stealing, I know y'all got a pretty good listening, but we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about it. We go three for two. We don't just two for one. We go three for twos. And sometimes even in my head, I'm thinking four for threes at the end of quarters with quick shots. We, we, stole, we stole 68 possessions this year by going three for two, two for one, and then also a technique we use where we milk the clock. Um, if the other team's trying to two-for-one us, we'll kick the ball around on an outlet pass. We'll toss it to the ref and make them toss it back to us because that, that game clock's still running and the shot clock hadn't started. So we've killed – we call them milks. We had four milks this year. One official caught me while I was doing He said, I could give you a technical for that, but that's pretty smart, so I'm not going to. So we are constantly trying to steal possessions. But if you could give me one number, it would be – us have more attempts at on goal, almost a hockey term, more attempts on goal than our opponents. And we do have to get better rebounding. I, if we can just increment, this is what we did at Washington too. We, we started out offensively, got the offense built. Then we had a couple of really re, rebounding minded people. And that's the year that, you know, we went to the final four because we had a kid that led the country in rebounding too. Yeah, that, that always helps, right? When sure. You, you well, I mean, that's a secondary thing to me. I <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah. Now, that we, now that we've got that established, let's add this layer. And this layer is increasing our defensive rebounding. And we added a little length and size this year. And I, I think, you know, I think we were – there's 356 Division One teams. I think we were 341st in rebounding. Um, so, there was only 15 teams. I'm not even sure those teams played this year. I think they may have been COVIDed out. So we may have finished dead last <laughs> in people that actually played games. Um, 
But I think you're going to see that number creep into the mid, the middle of the pack, you know, 150, 140-ish. And if we do that, then added with what we've already done, that's when I think we can kind of knock that next domino down that, that's standing out in front of us. All right, so let's boil it down. Now, obviously, teams know you're going to run. Yep. Uh, they're, that's, you know, we're scouting you. That's one of your big emphasis to try to stop you from running. So maybe, maybe a dead ball. Uh, made basket, right? You, you're, they kind of force you into half quarter. They stop your transition. I know some people debate on, are we running secondary stuff? Are we running straight into our offense? Are we flowing in the concepts? What's kind of your philosophy on that? They, they, they stop your initial, yeah. initial push. And I know you use the dragon, uh, you know, you, you reverse it to the, to the dragon. Um, yeah. But then kind of what goes on after that? What's your, what are you thinking on that? Yeah. At that point in time, I'm usually trying to isolate a mismatch. We, we've picked out – we've kind of carved out the weak antelope a little bit there uh, in, in some of that. So, that's when you'll see me look down at my, my map and, hey, you know, Chelsea's having a good night or Ramirez is having a good night or they've got a bad matchup here. and Or if they're switching, maybe we can run a rub or a twist, a little quick entry to get the matchup that we want and then run some ISO plays. Uh, when I have a chance to slow down and think about it for just a second, like, again, I always tease my football – brethren because I, I study football coaches as much as I do anybody but when I get a chance to huddle and look at my card uh, we can usually pick something out that works pretty good uh, so we'll go to that usually a hot hand or a hot or, or or at their weak player or somebody in foul trouble um, but that's that's when we, we use that dead time you know that's that's something we talk to a lot about our players what, what are you doing there in the, the when the clock's not moving uh, we got a list. Of, you ought to be checking the score. I got one person that's checking the possession arrow. I got one per. I only want one person looking at me. I want all five of them looking at me. So I put one person in charge of knowing the possession arrow. One person knowing whether we're in the bonus or not. Um, just a variety of things to occupy dead ball. The other two get together and talk about the the two get back people. Get back and remind each other. Hey, we're get back people. So I try to occupy the dead ball time with them and then make some eye contact with my racker and, and we come up with something that works. Okay. So uh, let's expand on that. You said, is that based on position? Are you, are you making those assignments based on, okay, you're this, you're, you're yeah. okay. It's just, it's just based on a positional thing. No, it's, it's based on the kid, what they can okay. handle. Okay. You, know, I'm, you know, as, as talented and as incredible and, and legacy leaving as Dungey is, I would never put her in charge of any of that. I just wanted to make sure she was in the game. And how many fouls do I have? That's what I told her to check. Every dead ball, how many fouls do you have? Um, that's all I wanted her to worry about. I didn't want her worried about anything other than attack mentality. So you, you, you put them in charge of the things they're good at. You know, give them a chance to, uh, you know, maybe they grow over time. But, man, let's just keep it pretty simple. Let's not, you know, let's not try to, you know, hire a turtle to climb a tree or a, a, a fish to, to do that. Let's let them do what they do. So uh, but we try to we try to make sure everybody's got something going on. Uh, some kids, it's just simply getting out there and making sure their shoes are tied and their, their jerseys are tucked in or something. But um, you certainly just got to play to your, your player's strengths. All right, so let's go back to this ISO concept, finding, yeah. finding kind of the weak link. Yeah. Um, how are you? How are you getting it to that point where you have that advantage? Because obviously, you know, it's not like the NBA game where okay, we're just going to go clear out, you know, right. and do do all that. So, how do you get your your players in that position to where you can take advantage of that weak link? 
a lot of time it, you know, we, we've usually identified the person through scouting already, but, but sometimes it's a game by game deal too. Hey, this kid's having an off night or they've already got two fouls. Uh, we've been pretty good at that, attacking somebody with foul trouble, but um, we have a couple, we call them prefixes. Um, they're, we say them before we say the play's name. So like we have a, a twist family, uh, we have a clear family, we have a move family, we have a, a, a lasso, um, which by the way, if y'all haven't seen Ted Lasso, you better start watching it. It's amazing coaching. He's my, I want to be Ted, Ted Lasso someday. But anyway, we have a, a play called Lasso and that is a movement that moves our players from one spot to the next and gets the ball to the person we're getting ready to ISO for. And then it triggers. So like we said, clear, everybody moves. So if we go clear, twirl side. We've cleared it and we twirls the family and sides the action. So we've gotten the right person into the twirl spot to attack the, the ball screen. So we'll do that. Uh, that that's one way that, that I think, you know, allows us um, to get the right matchup onto the right person. Um, just a little movement. It's like, it's like pre-motion snap in football. You know, we're in the same alignment, but we're going to move that player to a different spot. And then I think the other key, anytime you're in an ISO play, especially for us, because in the NBA, they got those rules about where they can be. <clears throat> You've got to occupy the help somehow. <clears throat> How are you going to occupy the help defender? Because they're ready because – they know, hey, we're not the only ones that know that's the weak antelope. They're having to play with them the whole time. So they're used to having to be in help. So we've got to occupy that help somehow. That if you send the primary person to go take the, the ISO help, that person, the next person's got to be a threat too. And usually for a three. So a stagger or a, a curl step back or a pistol action or a simple cut away. Um, You've got to occupy the, their best help defender and their most common person to go help. Make them help from a long way away or off of a, your best three-point shooter. And, and then you, you've got to coach your kid that's in that ISO uh, to, to do your job. If you draw the help defender, you, you got to kick it out. Um, sometimes we charge into that player. I don't care if – we don't care if our players charge into their man. Like, I don't care if Dungey runs over her own man, but if she's charging into somebody else's man, then we got a problem because that person was probably open or the next pass was. So that's kind of our rule. Hey, if you charged into your the person that was guarding you initially, no problem. You're being aggressive. But if you charged into one of the other four players, I, I'm not going to call you selfish yet, but maybe, you know, if you've ever seen the C.K. Lewis bit on that, maybe – Maybe you are a little selfish. If you're continually charging in to help defenders, why? Why? Why are you – Why you're getting by years, yeah, but you just charged into – hell, they could have called it on either one of them. We had one of those cases. Two people took a charge. I didn't even know who they called it on. It didn't matter. They both – they were both there, you know. And it only takes a few times in the film room for a kid to really see that and learn it. And, again, that's when you challenge them. Hey, are, are – or you can't, you can you do it? Or are you not doing it? Which one is it? So. So I, before we get into our last two uh, fun segments, I, I wanted to end kind of with this question and, and it came from a book I was reading um, that kind of talked about uh, 
coaches that sometimes may feel the like imposter syndrome, like, am I really supposed to be the head coach? Am I really supposed to be here? Like, you know, um, you know, and I noticed, you know, your first high school team, I believe started one in 24. Was that your first year? You know, when in that year or in that year, when you first got to Washington and your first year as a head coach uh, in major college or in your first year back in Arkansas, did you ever have those, those feelings of not necessarily, I couldn't do it, but you know, some of that imposter syndrome, some of that doubt. Still do literally every single day. You know, and I'm the one that's supposed to be making this decision for us. Yeah. What's that book? I'm intrigued. Do you remember the name? Of the uh, book? Yeah. The book is called, um, I will find it for you. See if but. you can find it. I'll, I'll answer. Um, I definitely have it to this day. I certainly had it in both of the places that you were talking about. Um, you know, that, that one in 24 year, I, although it galvanized my, you know, solidified and, and, and made me know that I, I wanted to coach women's basketball. I swore I would never coach it when I was growing up and playing. Um, but after one year of going one in 24, I was offered our high school boys job six times and never took it because I loved it. I loved it. So the one in 24, you know, made me learn and understand this was what I was supposed to be doing. That was when the game found me. Um, the transition from assistant coach to head coach was an absolute brick to the face. I mean, because there is nothing that translates. Nope. None of it. And I tell that I speak to assistant coaches all the time. And I say, just because you're a good assistant coach doesn't mean you're going to be a good head coach. It doesn't, you're, you may not even, are you sure you want to do this? You know, I've got a list of about 20 things that I ask everybody. Are you sure you want to be the head coach? The number one thing I always ask them is, can you handle them not being your friend anymore or being friendly to you or learning the whole truth from them or hearing anything? And it hit me at Washington. It was the first – on Friday, I was the assistant coach. On, Monday, on Tuesday, I was the head coach, okay? On Friday, we went out to eat with the team downtown Seattle. I drove like a little Subaru Outback or something, you know, some car that they gave us out there because everybody's so economy friendly. I had 11 people trying to cram into my Subaru Outback to go eat, okay? My head coach drove a big Tahoe, and he had one freshman with him, right? Fast forward to the next Tuesday, we go out to celebrate me being hired. I've got his Tahoe, the exact same Tahoe. My friend had my Subaru. 11 people getting in the Subaru, one freshman getting in with me. Hmm. So, you know, are you sure you want to be the head coach? But, yeah, I, I definitely still feel that way. I felt like that. I, I wrote a piece. I've got it out there. If any of your listeners want to email me. I made 418 mistakes that I cataloged. <laughs> I made more than that, but I only wrote down 418. <laughs> um, my first year, I, I knew that I was going to be asked to do a speech at the end of that year for a, uh, an organization at, at Nike at the Villa 7. They wanted me to come speak on my first 100 days. So that's when I started writing down my mistakes, things I did wrong. Not things I did right, things I did wrong. And it was 418 that I categorized into about 12 areas. And, and I still continue to make some of those, even in the transition, even though I know better. I still continue. The, the domino knocking down 
Uh, anybody listening, go on YouTube and, and, and watch. There's a, a video about a small domino knocking down a bigger domino, knocking down a bigger domino. You know, it's 1.5 centimeters, knocks down a, a four, like a four centimeter one. And you keep going and it gets to be the size of the Eiffel Tower and uh, Mount, you know, Mount Everest. If you don't take a domino, you know, if you, if you don't skip a domino. I still do that. I did it this year. Probably cost us a run in the NCAA tournament. So, yeah, uh, I've, I've got to have the name of that book before we get off of here, though. Or you're yes. going to email me later because I, uh... I uh, I'm an avid reader. I'm an, I just, I just went, I got, just got two new books sitting here beside me. None of which, by the way, are going to help me. This, you think this book's going to help me in coaching at all? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. The true story behind the oral history of dazed and confused. I'm not sure this is going to help me at all in coaching, but that's, that's my, that's next up on my, <laughs> my reading list. So I, I need the, something, John, I need something. What the, is it? The book is called the tough stuff. And I will put it in the chat for you, but for our listeners, the book is called it. The Tough Stuff, and it's it. by Cody Royal. I love it. I will so. have that ordered via Amazon uh, before uh, before you guys hit print on this uh, podcast. So the uh, the best part about that is chapter one is everybody thinks you're an idiot. So that's my uh, that's my. That's, I mean, I, I'm that guy. I, I I wake up every morning and and not sure that that I'm ready to 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 make the decisions that you're forced to make, but you know, you hope that you hope that you're getting the, the wisdom somehow either from your past experiences or the people you've surrounded yourself with to get through it. But I'll give y'all, you know, if nobody's going to gain anything from the dazed and confused oral history, probably. But man, if, if you're not reading Annie Duke's stuff right now, uh, she's the former poker player. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw her. She's she writes books on decision making. She's got two out and a third on the way. One's mm-hmm. called Thinking and Bets. And one's called How to Decide. Hmm. I would tell you that I would not have survived COVID without those two books. Um, her stuff was so timely. It was right on point. It's readable. It's applicable. Uh, you know, she relates it to a lot of different sports analogies. And we've had her on a couple of Zoom podcasts that, that we do. She's absolutely phenomenal. If, if thinking in bets, I'd read first. And then how to decide and, and her third book that's coming out, I think in September, October is going to really drill down deep and it's going to have a lot of basketball, a lot of, she's been interviewing a lot of coaches um, to see how it correlates to sports. And I, I'm really interested to see that third one come out. All right, coach. So we're, we're kind of into our season two here and we wanted to yeah. change up some of our segments. So yeah, good. Um, we're, we're the after the timeout podcast. So, we wanted to give what we're calling a 30-second timeout. All right, your so be plan, quick. Short answer. Plan. I got you. Okay. Well, it doesn't even have to be short. It's a very loose 30-second oh, okay. timeout. Oh, okay. All right, right good. There. I got you all know. kinds of time. I don't know if y'all are bound by the, time. The referees <laughs> aren't in your huddle on this yeah, one. The referees aren't coming okay. to give you I first like corn. It. Okay. Um, but your platform, anything you want, uh, you know, something you're involved in, something you're passionate about, an outside organization, charity, uh, story, whatever, whatever comes to your mind that y- you want to you, you wanna talk about. Yeah, well, I start with start with Coach Blair. He started the Special Olympics golf tournament here when I was an assistant coach uh, back during those days. So, um, and that's that's delved off into so many other different areas. I've got a, a friend who's got an autistic son, so that's become uh, you know dear to my heart. We have a fan that's autistic that uh, I've learned a lot more about. So, um, I've been really passionate about learning more tolerance. You know, I think that's a, a word that we all need a little bit more of with 
all that we're dealing with, with um, social injustice and just the way we treat people. So uh, got really passionate about Special Olympics a long time ago and stayed true there. Um, and anything, any opportunity that we have to, to impact somebody who is less fortunate, that's something that we always try to get our players involved in and, and our coaches as well. So let's finish now. This is uh, again a, a newer segment for us, but this one we're this one we call quick hitters. Yo. So I'm I'm just gonna ask you just quick rapid fire questions, and you just give us your your answers on this Got one. Got so the first one, your favorite sport outside of basketball growing up as a kid? Oh, it was well, baseball was my number one sport. Basketball was actually two. So baseball okay. by far. I was baseball card collector. Played it. The backyard, you know, we played every day. How about your favorite NBA and WNBA team? Never had one. I have never pulled for a team. I pulled for players. You know, we talked about Jordan a little bit when we were there. I pulled for players, but I've never had a specific team that I just like live and die with. So any sport other than other than the Razorbacks. If you could coach any other sport, what would it be? Golf. Oh, smart that, man. That, that way I get – because they all get to play the great courses. Mm-hmm. When I was a high school coach at Bentonville, you had to bid on being the golf coach. You didn't get paid for it. You had to bid to be it <laughs> because they got memberships to play seven golf courses up there year-round, and you got – it'd be golf for sure. Best Arkansas food. I don't know that we're known for anything specific and this may not even be factual, but I got to think we invented the fried Twinkie and the fried Snickers and the fried, because I remember those, the first time I ever saw them was at the Arkansas state fair. They will fry anything, dip it down in there, fried Twinkie or fried Snickers, fried. I don't even remember all funnel, fried funnel cakes, which I thought was already fried. So I guess it's <laughs> fried funnel cake. Um, I, I I guess okra, fried okra is kind of, we have a team in our state that's, their mascot is an okra. So maybe fried okra would be the, the most Arkansas food. But the thing that we, I think that we don't get enough credit for is our barbecue. Like everybody talks about Memphis barbecue and Kansas city barbecue. And we're kind of right in between those two. So I, we've got a couple of places around here that I, I'd put up against anybody in the world. And then last one, coaching mentor. I just mentioned him a minute ago. Ted Lasso. If y'all haven't watched, you got to watch it. Have y'all seen it? I have not seen it, but I do know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah. with uh, Jason. Uh, yeah. Sudeikis. Sudeikis. It's on Apple TV and he is just this, I, I hope I'm one, 100 for the coach that, that um, Ted Lasso is, but uh, I'd have to, you know, obviously Gary Blair is the coach that gave me my start in college. And he's somebody I continue to, you know, call when I'm really, really stuck. Uh, he got me, you know, he taught me how to be a good assistant. Then I mentioned Kevin McGuff earlier. Uh, he's the one that got me ready to be a head coach. I, I was floundering around. I wasn't sure. Maybe that imposter syndrome that you're talking about, which by the way, you've got me really intrigued to find out about. Um, I thought for a while, maybe I was just supposed to be the guy that helped the guy, the the Leo McGarry from West Wing or something. Oh, like now that. you're talking about my favorite show of all time. See, that's my number list? one. That's my number one. No, West Wing's my number one. I, I'm my. afraid Ted Lasso may challenge it. But to me, I, I, I thought I wanted to be Leo McGarry. 
And, um, you know, Kevin was the guy that said, nah, you, you, you can do this stuff. It's going to be hard for a while, but, uh, so I, I, I lean on those two guys. Those are the, you know, kind of the first two phone calls and then, uh, it goes down from there, but I, I'd have to count, you know, those two guys among my, my life, my real life mentors. I have five pictures in my office of, of, uh, Mickey from Rocky is one of my coaching mentors. I, I like the, the way he, he got the rock train for um, some of his earlier fights. And um, I got Crash Davis up there from Bull Durham. I like the way he kind of handled Nuke. I got Mr. Miyagi. Miyagi's one of my – Miyagi's probably three because the way he taught through lessons, you know, the wax on, wax off scene, the whole – I try to teach through moments like that. I've had a few in my career, not any probably worthy of being written about in movies. But, but, but fun things I've talked back with players when they had that – kind of that aha moment, but I tried to find inspiration from everybody. Anybody, Susie McConnell that got, or Kathy McConnell Miller that got me my first assistance job and Susie Gardner is the other head coach that I've worked for. So I've learned something from all of them. Uh, every coach, every assistant coach I've ever worked with and had. Um, and, and like today, this, this hour invested with y'all is going to be well worth it. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to know about coaching imposter and it'll probably help me be a better coach. I, those types of things we, we tell our kids all the time. I think it's important for us as coaches too. you know, when you get our age, really about the only thing that changes are the people you meet and talk to and the books that you read. So that's how you continue to grow. And um, <clears throat> I've learned something good or bad from literally every person I've, I've made a connection with in my life. Well, coach, I, we can't thank you enough. I was, uh, I was messaging Todd, Todd and I messaged on the side throughout episodes. This has been my favorite episode oh, um, that we've ever done. I, we greatly appreciate you being yeah. on taking yeah. the time for us and, and yeah. we will definitely be communicating with you down the line. Yeah. yeah, please do. Please feel free to share my email address with your listeners. It's coach It'll neighbors do. spelled out. No, no uh, capitalization or, or punctuation. Coach Neighbors at um, UARK, so University of Arkansas.edu. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Plicky. For more show content and upcoming episodes, Follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.